and welcome to April Fool's Majors Gotcha. We're not actually doing an episode. Liam, what are your favorite pranks that you pull on everybody's favorite American holiday? Uh, so the pranks I like to pull, I like to put cyanide in people's oatmeal. And, okay. Uh, so, like, wait, just hold a on murder. a second. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh-oh. Uh, I have some phone calls to make. Uh, this is Media Majors. It's a storytelling podcast. I'm Liam Senior, and I like internet culture and video games. And I'm Tom Lockney, and I like movies and TV. That's right. We contain multitudes. Multitudes. Everybody. We decided to switch subjects today uh, mm-hmm. for a episode. Fun I'm gonna episode call gimmick. The swap episode. <laughs> no, don't call it that. I wanted to talk about something on the under the umbrella of arcades. Uh, and my original idea was to talk about stuff at Chuck E. Cheese's, but that got dark, like real dark, like real fast. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah. Drugs. How many people have died in a Chuck E. Cheese? More than one, my friend. Oh, God. Uh, they, you know, drugs, lots of fights, child labor, including the trash (laughs) compactor and the dough mixer. What? What? Yeah. So, fuck you, Chuck E. Cheese. Oh, man. But I really like arcades, uh, but they don't really exist anymore. Um, it's all Dave and Buster's now, and th- and those are just essentially, like, iPhones that you walk through, because it's just all apps that you can play for free. Yeah, Fruit Ninja. So I started doing research about arcades to see if there was, like, maybe a... A creepy story or something like a, like a like a, a murder there wasn't but i did uncover something interesting so this is the the criminal history of pinball what awesome great wait what would you how would you do crimes in pinball that well i guess to, we're gonna find we're out. gonna find out and there are pinball in our there are pinball games in arcades, so this counts for video games. Hooray! Uh, the origins of pinball are intertwined with the history of many other games. The concept of billiards, you know, hitting balls with other balls, kind of started, and then um, eventually it came to hitting balls with uh, paddles or hammers or some sorts, and then shrinking that down and putting it on a board. Uh, and then that the billiard table was invented somewhere during the reign of Louis the Fourteenth. His reign in France was sixteen forty three to seventeen fifteen, and uh, that's when a lot of games like bowling and pool and stuff like that were kind of invented. And then somewhere in the seventeen hundreds, Japanese billiards was invented in western europe but they called it mm-hmm. japanese billiards because whenever oh. there's a chance for a white person to be racist they'll yeah they're gonna run and jump for it like a rabid dog for a piece <laughs> of meat and then uh they figured out how to this is when they kind of figured out how to hit the balls with coiled springs like kind of launch them and then that's how pachinko was invented and then after Pachinko, in 1869, nice, British inventor Montague Redgrave, it's a French name and he's British, settled in the U.S. Okay, so this fucker just can't pick a goddamn nationality and stick with it. He's all over the board. 
Uh, he made a patent, patent number 115 in 1871. Sorry, patent number 115,357 for mm. his improvements on the bagatelle and introducing or uh, spring-launching pinball board known as Billiard Japanese. Uh, so, wait, he just switched the he names? He just switched the names. Huh. French, he named it a French thing. So he named something invented by Western Europeans that they called Japanese. He named it French because his name is French, but he's an Englishman living in the U.S. Oh. Pinball. That's a lot. So um, in 1931, David Gottlieb invented... Uh, baffle ball which was the first like machine type of game and eventually that kind of collided with the pinball board and the first pinball machines were invented uh by Gottlieb and Co in 1943 in Chicago part two Fiorello Henry LaGuardia who the airport is somehow named after, was an American politician. He's best known for being the 99th mayor of New York City for three terms, from 34 to 45, as a Republican. Uh, he was a Republican, but he appealed to everybody and was super popular in New York during the 30s. He was a big Roosevelt supporter and a New Dealer, so he got a bunch of funding for New York City through Roosevelt. Uh, he revitalized New York City and restored public faith in City Hall. He unified the transit system, directed the building of low-cost public housing, public playgrounds, and parks, built airports, named an airport after himself, reorganized the police force, and what is pretty impressive is de he defeated Tammany Hall. Do you know about Tammany Hall? In, yes, and did he defeat him in blood combat? No, he defeated them through like his own like a like nonviolent political means. Oh, so the exact opposite of what I said. Yes. That's good. That's good. I like it when the politicians remain on the up and up. It's pretty good. So, he was also not a fan of the Italian gangster image. He associated pinball with general debauchery. And because of that... Really? Yes. Because when I think of pinball, I think of like a, maybe like a drunk dude at a bar... With his buddies behind him, kind of just like egging him on to do some dumb shit. Well, Tom, it was under coin operated. Which actually, yeah. Now that I, now that I mention it, that is technically debauchery. So I guess, well, I guess I answered my own question, huh? The thing was, uh, so um, Baffle Ball in '31, created by David Gottlieb, was the first coin operated game, the first coin operated mm -hmm. machine game, and uh, because of that, uh, there was a lot of controversy over coin-operated amusements because the coin-operated amusement industry which included jukeboxes pinball machine slots gumball machines and later video cab cabinets had mm -hmm. roots in gambling oh okay and fixing like the mob had fixed slot machines and the mob had also fixed gumball machines it was nice of them to take care of all of those broken machines no, i don't know why i don't know why laguardia was so opposed to that tom essentially they thought well we could just make money. <laughs> they ba they basically came up with a gumball machine as a way to be like, we can't make money off of slot machines, fixing slot machines anymore. How can we make coin money? I know. <laughs> Candy. Yeah, we'll rob children. I guess. I mean, it worked. 
Kids don't need money. See, it's they okay. were used to sidestep state gambling laws against cash payout machines by offering gum as a prize. So from the beginning, pinball machines were a subject of debate revolving around one main question, whether or not pinball machines were a game of chance, which by hmm. definition meant they were gambling devices. Okay. As early as 34, uh, operators, game manufacturers, and distributors all argued unsuccessfully that pinball was a game of skill. So games have always been looked down by Society. people outside of the game industry from the start. Politics. Uh, so the first full-fledged and highly publicized legal attack on pinball came on January 21st, 1942, when New York City Mayor Fiorella LaGuardia banned pinball in the city, ordering the seizure of thousands of machines. The ban would go on to remain until 1976. Oh my god, seriously? Yep. Wait, okay, question then. Because whenever you ban something... It never, it never goes away. Like people didn't stop drinking in Prohibition, and we know that if you ban abortion, you don't actually ban abortion; you just ban safe abortion. Yep. So what I'm about to ask you is, was there an underground pinball circuit? Uh, I think the problem was that pinball got roped in by accident. So it would be like one guy in an underground casino being like, "And how about a, a pinball machine over here? That'd be nifty, right, guys? Right, gang?" Yeah, you, you can't you bet knock, on it, but you'll have fun and maybe get a gumball. You knock shaving a haircut and the craps table at your at your local gambling store, gambling and they take you into easy. the secret back room where you get to play pinball with your buds. Well, if there are a bunch of bearded dudes in glasses, you've described like ten percent of the bars in New York City because they're dedicated to <laughs> pinball. I'm not even kidding. So yeah. He, LaGuardia had, before this, because he was so against the Italian gangster image and because he himself was Italian, he shut down brothels, rounded up slot machines, arrested gangsters on any charge he could find, and he banned pinball. For the somewhat puritanical LaGuardia, pinball machine push pushers were, and this is a quote, slimy crews of tin horns, well-dressed and living <laughs> in luxury on penny thievery. Thievery. <laughs> and the game was part of a broader craze for gambling. He ordered the city's police to make prohibition-style pinball raids and seizures its top priority and was photographed oh with a sledgehammer triumphantly smashing a seized machine. Man, the, the 1940s were a fucking trip, huh? 2,000 pinball machines were confiscated that day. That's devastating. Though probably overstated at the time, pinball's relationship to organized crime did exist. The end of Prohibition didn't bring an end to the mob, uh, but it kind of gave them the, it made them be like, all right, if we can't run booze, what can we run? And that's where we get fixing vending machines, cigarette machines, jukeboxes, and prostitution. Hmm. Oh. That's kind of where it all started. Well, I mean, prostitution has been around forever, but that's when the yeah. mob started to get involved. No, actually, the, the illegalization of pinball created the profession of prostitution. You heard it here first. Yep. And you also heard it here last. April Fools! <laughs> April Fools. None of this is real. I made all this up. Just kidding. <laughs> LaGuardia's mission gave voice to sentiments which harkened back to the moral outrage of the Prohibition era, uh, which had absolutely nothing to do with organized crime at the time. Prohibition was was from a movement that was based on like 
uh, values. It had nothing to do with the mob. It was just the mob ended up getting kind of screwed. I'm not a historian, but didn't 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 that mean that they had all the power when it came to like running booze and yeah. bootlegging? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. they they were bootlegging was a huge industry. That's like how Al Capone made all his money. Pinball was a, a pointless game. It was attractive to children, and this worried parents and concerned citizens. It always does. A, a uh, An expert in the history of pinball says that they were off-the-book justifications for banning pinball in addition to those that were actually used to make it legal. So the, so the mother... There was, like, a motherfucker... Motherfucking hooded, <laughs> dark Illuminati trying to stop pinball. Like, that was a worried that it was going to poison the youth of our nation and also had dark reasons to... Jesus Christ. Oh, boy. Um... So they made this a case, the successful case that pinball was a type of gambling, and that it was from the devil and corrupted youths. Uh, That's typically where that stuff comes from, of course. And uh, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, all banned the game. Bummer. Until 1976, when Mayor Michael Bloomberg realized that this was really stupid. Yeah. So, unfortunately, it was too late for pinball by the time the ban had been undone. For something else had began to fill up arcades, and those were, of course, arcade games. Video games. The things that are, like, way better than pinball. Yep. Hey, what's what do you want to do? Do you want to, like, knock a little metal ball around in a glass prison or do you want to come over here and fly through space and, like, shoot God? There you go. I'll, I would rather do that second thing. Thank you very much. And while there is still uh, a couple of pinball-based bars in the city, they're mostly arcade-based bars that have maybe a couple, one or two pinball tables. Do you know what I bet we're going to see in the future? Uh, nudes? Uh, the arcades. Because it's super expensive tech, yeah. Because it's super expensive technology. Um, like I, I want VR, but I'll never buy it because it's like a hundred million fucking dollars. But if I want to go with my buds to and watch each other freak out because we're playing a VR game on the top of the Empire State Building or something like that, uh, or a VR game that takes place up there, and I have vertigo and And then vomit. King Kong. Yeah. And, uh, That'd be a fun VR game. Yeah, I th- I think that we'll see a revitalization of arcades if VR if they capitalize on VR. Anyways, that is the weird criminal uh, adjacent history of pinball and how one mayor destroyed <laughs> it from being a popular thing in New York because he was worried that it was linked to the mafia. Oh, lame. All right, thank you, Liam. That was fascinating. I had no idea. Right? All right. Now I'm going to go. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm going to call this story The Storyteller. Andrew Getty was born on July 1st, 1967 to an established $2 billion oil dynasty created by his grandfather. Estelle Getty. (laughs) For reasons unclear, he had a troubled youth would experience violent dreams 
These dreams were so violent, so upsetting, that Getty refused to believe that they came from his own mind. Well, that's just, I mean, who wouldn't do that? If yeah. you have bad dreams, there, someone, someone has given me these dreams, and I am <laughs> not for it. Whispering sweet nothings into my ear, not, and then these I are have a dream sweet. about killing the president or something. What? How? What? Never. He proposed that they came to him from some outside entity, a storyteller, living in the etheria of his sleeping mind. Oh, boy. He would continue to lead a troubled life, surrounding himself with unsavory characters, according to close personal friends. Quick note, uh, that piece of information came from people who were like, yeah, he surrounded himself with all these like hot women he wanted to fuck, and they just wanted him for his money, and like they did drugs all the time. And it was this like kind of very underlying misogynist thing that that, that you get from like like a People magazine or some, or some like Hollywood celebrity publication. So that's where I got it from. So take that with a little grain of salt. Uh, this dude sounds like a virgin, just uh, like a. I mean, there's a there's a storyteller in the ethereal plane giving me these bad dreams. <laughs> what a fucking nerd! His true passion was screenwriting. Oh God! In Kill his me time, now. Shoot me in the face. <laughs> he wrote dozens of scripts, but only one ever went anywhere. A script called Paul the Blart Maltart Two. I realize I said Paul Blart Maltart Two, and I love it. Yeah. It was called, what was it called? I totally missed her. The Storyteller. Not, based Jim, off, not Jim Henson's Storytellers. No. <laughs> Damn. And it was based off of Getty's horrific childhood dreams. Despite his total lack of experience, Getty took a look at his $6 million fortune and decided to make a movie out of it. Uh, that's, I mean. So this is, this is going great. I'm yeah. sure you can guess. Well, we... <sighs> Every story I've heard about someone putting money into a movie never ends good? A passion project and stuff like that, yeah. Yep. Production of the film began in 2002, but Getty's obsessive, rigorous methods would prove problematic for the development of the film. Of course it would. Directors are notoriously stinkers. It was shot in his mansion, and the shooting of the <laughs> film... <laughs> it was shot at his mansion. It would take five years of filming. But he owned the mansion! As Getty would constantly stop production to meticulously scrutinize each and every frame and continue crafting the film. My he God. would construct unique camera rigs, expensive sets, and impressive animatronics, most famously of which being an octopus built to play the drums. As such, Wait, cast and crew. Was he having a bad <laughs> dream after falling asleep to like a '60s cartoon? <laughs> oh, I see horrible images. Octopus is playing the drums. G sharks playing the guitars. As such, cast and crew changed regularly, with the only two actors consistently remaining on the project being two of the three leads. Uh, those two being Frederick Kohler, who you'll know from. The Death Race remake. Uh, I would and not. And some other films. And Sean Patrick Flannery, oh. who was one of the protagonists of Saw 3D, the final chapter. 
that's not all. There was he was in more stuff. Sean Patrick. Oh yeah, right? he's been in more stuff. Wait, but I know him boondock, from Saw. He's not a Boondock Saint, is he? Oh yes, he is. He ah uh, yes. And the other, the third lead, was Dina Meyer. Ah. Now, what is this movie about? You might ask. An octopus that plays the drums. An octopus that plays the drums, and his brother, John. Actually, no. It's about Good. Dennis. Wait, I want to hear more about John the Octopus. No, it's about Dennis. Dennis and his brother slash caretaker, John. Okay. And John's girlfriend, Susan. Of course. Dennis his, is a special needs individual. Gotcha. Always uh, good which, for a person to... Mm, uh, mm. Uh, I've always seen that portrayed sensitively and yep. delicately. Especially in the early aughts. Oh, like. yeah. Geely. Uh, Dennis is a special needs individual who suffers from horrific nightmares once his brother brings this mirror into their home. Okay. I, I won't spoil the rest, but things escalate from there, as you can imagine. This is a horror movie. I think you can guess sort of what's going on. Scary things. Filming completed in 2007, but the film remained unreleased. Getty would obsess over the colorizing, editing, and special effects. He would actually colorize before editing, which is apparently not done. Nope, don't do that, because then you got to have the picture locked down. And once everything's in order there, then you can fudge with the colors. He would go on to sink four million of his six million net worth on the film. Jesus. Quote from Michael Luceri, producer. Rather than have a steak dinner one night, he'd spend so much on the movie that I saw him eat cereal. He'd eat cereal for a couple of weeks. Yeah. He would also apparently exhibit other erratic behaviors, like keeping guns by the bedside. And I mean, like, lit- not like in a safe or in a drawer. Yeah, like I mean, literally, he would have a gun open on the floor, yeah. and he would not let anybody into his bedroom for fear that they would accidentally shoot themselves. Hey, dude, why don't you just not have the gun there? Well, Tom, if he has the, if he doesn't have the gun, how is he supposed to go to bed? <laughs> you don't understand. I. I, I I, I just don't understand a director's world, Liam. I don't understand this world that you're fascinated with. Oh, you gotta, you gotta have a gun. All the good directors use a gun. Martin Scorsese slept with a Magnum, three five seven. Akira Kurosawa slept with a shotgun. Well, that's how they got. That's how Sam Raimi got Tobey Maguire to cry so good in the Spider-Man movies. Was he held him at gunpoint? And told him that he, if he didn't act, he was going to shoot him in front of everybody. And uh, it worked. That's horrible. And that's why those are the best movies I've ever seen in my life. It's horrible, Tom. <laughs> horrible thing to say that those movies are good. Though this may seem like standard fare for an eccentric, weird billionaire, this behavior yep. was likely the result of his recreational methamphetamine use. Oh, well, you didn't mention that he was a meth head. <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I couldn't find confirmation as to whether this was like if he was smoking that crystal gotcha. or if he was if using he was playing like Star Fox and... assault and choosing crystal yeah like there are like pres- prescriptions with like amphetamines in them so <laughs> not claritin though right actually yes claritin is Damn. just meth <laughs> that explains the sores that's why i eat it like candy the need to do meth all the time but <laughs> Doesn't explain why my sinuses have never been clear. 
His death was ruled an accident. Oh, fuck. Wait, roll time. <laughs> Tom Wait a just minute. skipped a line. Hold on a story. second. <laughs> All right. He continued cool. to work. Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> I'm just going to try to forget the fucking atomic fat man that was dropped on me. <laughs> April Fools. I told you he was dead, but he wasn't. I promise. He continued work on the movie until 2015. Hang on a his... second, Tom. I gotta drink. I gotta take a drink from this big glass of water. All right, Liam's taking a big old sip. Ooh, slurp it, slurp it down. All right, I got about. I got about ten more seconds on this glass. So let's keep when talking. his ex-girlfriend Lanessa Dejonge walked into his home to find him dead. What? I drank all the water. I couldn't spit take it. I ran out of water. <laughs> So, th- so basically, this guy finishes filming on the movie in 2007 and, and just edits it. He Tinker Tailored Soldier died. Oh, yes. There we go. Nailed it. It's a one good joke for every episode. Yep. His death was ruled in accident. That's, that's all we feel the need we have to give you guys. Just <laughs> as, as jo- I think it was uh, John Hawks who said a movie is three good shots, no bad shots. A Media Matrix episode is one good joke, and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> his death was ruled an accident the result of internal bleeding from an ulcer likely the product of his meth usage or his methamphetamine use. a likely story so it looked like the film was dead nobody was no tom to the director was dead the film well, was in a status of who knows yeah it was in limbo but but remember the cast and crew were not shifted dead. constantly and so there was nobody who had been attached to the project long enough uh, who still really wanted to do it. Nobody was very interested, even to begin with, in the hyper-specific vision of an outsider billionaire. Enter Fortunately, a little indie darling by the name of Steven Spielberg. <laughs> Fortunately, producer Michael Luceri stepped in to finish the project, not wanting Getty's work to go to waste. And the film would be released in 2017 under the name The Evil Within. Okay. I've seen this movie. You've told me about this. I think it's actually kind of good. Well, um, it is, Okay, like, let's, let's make one thing very clear. The way that it handles uh, special needs is, like, kind of fucking gross. Sure. It's not, it's not like as, it is definitely not as bad as it could be, but that doesn't make it any better. Yeah. Uh, There's actually a, a, this is not like a huge spoiler for the movie, but it's revealed at some point that uh, Dennis, the special needs character, was not Oh, thank God. I forgot his name was Dennis, and I immediately was going to say the menace. (laughs) It is revealed in the movie that he was not born that way, that he was pushed down the stairs, so he's not, like, technically speaking, a a, a person with a mental disability, Uh, but he was definitely told to act that way. Seems weird to give that to the character that you're based on, you know what I mean? And... Uh, it feels like a cheap rewrite to to circumvent the whole like, hey, it's kind of gross to say that somebody with like a mental disability would, dude, like feel predisposed to do things like this. Um, but it, I mean, he spent almost a decade tinkering on it. He spent eight years 
just tweaking the special effects and it super duper shows the special effects in this movie are all practical and really fucking impressive cool it does some really interesting visual stuff and i think it's like a fun bad movie in terms of the writing and and the i mean like sean patrick flannery is not like gonna bring home an oscar anytime soon and (laughs) hey never count out the flans yeah i think it's got impressive stuff in it i get it you have a crush on this movie my god (laughs) so that was my story for this week was the fucking wild tale about this bizarre project that should not have existed but does wow yeah all right liam i think it's time for our favorite segment Ooh, uh whose dog is this (laughs) uh but seriously whose dog is this yeah there's been there's a dog in liam's apartment right now and i can see it and it is mangy yeah he is terrified no it's time for our real favorite segment self-care corner because sometimes on this show we talk about some difficult topics like like banning pinball for 20 plus years yeah or how people sometimes have gross misconceptions about the mentally uh those with special needs so we like to take a moment to talk about a thing that was good in our lives for the week and i i'll go first i was gonna say you should on so i work at a farmer's market and on sunday i worked a 10-hour shift and it was exhausting and i hadn't eaten all day i have to wake up at like you know like six so i can get there early then we set up all the the stuff at the outdoor market it's all a bunch of heavy stuff then we pack up i don't get a lunch break uh, because we're just constantly selling food and then we drive to u-haul and put all of our equipment in storage which is like a whole bunch of heavy tables and tents and shit and i got home and i was exhausted and i felt like garbage but i couldn't go to sleep and i played mass effect literally all night because i i I tried i lay in bed for three hours and just couldn't sleep and i went and i played mass effect until five in the morning which i'm not a huge fan of that game and i know this doesn't sound like self-care but i'm getting there and I just felt like garbage, and I'd been awake for, like... Too long. Yeah, like 26 or 7 hours, and I was just like, fuck this. And I went, and I got in the shower. My self-care corner is that shower. I spent 30 minutes yeah. in the shower, Not even and it was, like, the time. perfect level of heat. And I just took, I just took so much time, like, soaping my body up, Ooh. and I, like sat down the floor is clean in my shower so i sat down in it and i just like let the water hit me and i felt all the stress and yuck and stink of the Mass past 24 drama. hours just like drain out of my body and it changed my life and that's my self-care corner uh you definitely jerked it in there anyway <laughs> my self-care corner is um a very simple story I went to a show last night. It was three bands. Uh, they were all, well, you'll see. The worst band of the night, the second band, was called Metal Yachi. And they were a mariachi band that did metal covers. And uh, huh. it was okay for five minutes. Then it was unbearable. 
That is an then incredibly it was specific niche. Well, Tom, we're about to get even deeper. Uh, oh. The lead, the lead singer, and the trump and the trumpet player made super sexist and super racist jokes. Oh, gross! And but mm. the lead violinist did all the guitar solos, and she was super cool. The second best band, the opener, was a metal band called Oakley Dokley. They okay. all cute. dress like Ned Flanders, and the lead singer acts like him and does not break character. That's very good. And they ended it with a su- stupid Sexy Flanders song, which is a thing from The Simpsons, and it was, he wore the ski suit. It was very fun. They were really good. good. But the best band of the night, the band I was there to see, was a band called Mac Sabbath. They are a Black Sabbath cover band that sing about McDonald's. <laughs> the drummer is the Hamburglar, but with uh, uh, Peter Chris's makeup from Kiss. The guitarist has a Mary McCheese helmet, like a big Mary McCheese head. You can't see his face with, like, devil horn boar tusks. Oh, my God. The bass player is in a full Grimace costume with, like, a little cockney hat and mutton chops and crazy eyes. And the lead singer is Ronald McDonald with, like, the Joker's makeup doing an Ozzy Osbourne impression. He oh, has, my God. He has a grill that lights up red and yellow and shoots out fog and steam, and his microphone is attached to a big McDonald's soda cup. Man, that's something else. That's the, I'm glad that we live in a world where people get together and are like, hey, do you want to do this like one very hyper-specific joke but a band? Well, the thing is, is that they are a band first, and they're a really good Black Sabbath cover band. Yeah? <laughs> like, oh my god, they were amazing. Awesome. Um, and just the... They did a Blue Velvet reference, and they had one of the stage hands be involved. He was wearing, like, the little paper hat and the yeah. and the coat, and he would, like, did do stuff with them the whole time. It was great. The lead That's singer dope. could do magic, so he did a bunch of stage magic while singing. <laughs> it was nuts. That's fucking great. It was really fun. Yeah, I mean, it's because so the lead singer Max was David Summit. Blaine. No. Oh my God, was... David, what are you doing here? So I left before their encore because they played all the songs I wanted to hear before, and I was super late and I was exhausted and wanted to get home. And uh, as I walk out the hall, I pass the lead singer, the Ronald McDonald, and he's still in character. He's off stage talking to like the booking agent, and he's still in character. It's oh my God, great. I'm sure the booking agent loved that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, this was, a like, a cabaret club. Yeah. It, it, this was, like, a, the basement of a... It was, like, a really awesome venue. But it was, like, the basement of a three-venue place called, like, Le Passion Rogue. It, the, lead, the booker was super into it. Awesome. Uh, so, yeah, Max Sabbath. They're awesome. And Oakley Doakley. They're great. All right. That brings us to the end of another episode of Media Majors. If you have any self-care corners that you would like to send to the podcast, you can email us at mediamagerspodcast at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at mediamagerscast. Hey, we are at 441 downloads, which is insane because the last time we recorded, we were trying to pass 300. So that's nuts, guys. That's fucking world. That's amazing. Uh, so yeah, tell your friends, spread the word, um, leave a review on iTunes, rate us. We're also going to start doing a thing where if you follow our Twitter account, 
if you give us an iTunes review, if you do do one of those two things, uh, we'll shout after, you out. Yeah, we'll shout. We're gonna do a shout out section at like real quick after self care corner during the plugs. So, yep, get on that. That uh, uh, yeah, yeah, we don't advertise so. But yeah, and like I said before, we're starting to pick up steam, and we want you guys to be as much of a part of it as we are. So. Thank you so much for listening, and please continue to do so, and please keep spreading the word. Yeah, and remember, 